and welcome to Security by the Book, a monthly podcast series from the Hoover Institution's Working Group on National Security, Technology, and Law. In this episode, Task Force Co-Chair and Hoover Senior Fellow Jack Goldsmith interviews Charlie Savage on his new book, Power Wars, Inside Obama's Post-9-11 Presidency. It was recorded on November 10th, 2015. Thank you all for coming tonight. Um, I don't need to tell this crowd that a defining characteristic of modern war and national security is the extent to which law plays an everyday intimate role in, in decision making and lawyers and policymakers work very closely together. It, hardly a day goes by, certainly not a week, in which there's not some important story on the front page of the newspaper about an important national security decision and especially about the legal angle on that decision. And it's not an exaggeration to say that at a very young age, I think, I don't know how old you are, but you're younger than I am, Charlie Savage is the dean of this corner of journalism. I'm 40, so Okay, not so, so that's young. very young. Very oh, okay. Young uh, last week, Yale professor Ona Hathaway wrote, when an important event related to national security occurs, one can often count on Savage to be the first to notice and write about it. I would say almost always, not often. Charlie has amazing sources inside the government and outside the government, and he uses those sources to extract and explain all manner of, uh, of legal issues and policy issues related to those legal issues that are going on in national security, not just from the executive branch, though primarily from the executive branch. Um, I can't tell you how many times that w what we know about the government's legal position is because either Charlie asked and was given an answer or, and used the pressure, I suppose, of his office to get an answer, or Charlie was basically figured out what was going on. So, so much of what we know about legal, the legal uh, basis for the war against ISIS, for the conflict in Syria, for signature strikes versus targeted strikes, so much of what we know about the legal basis, it doesn't come out in OLC opinions very often. It comes out in the New York Times in Charlie's stories. And I will say that he has an amazing ability to um, write with both concision, as you have to do when you're a journalist, but also accuracy about the legal issues. He's, he's very careful to get them right, and that's a hard thing to do when you have a very limited space and a general audience. So Charlie, that's Charlie, and Charlie has now written a book that both builds on his stories but builds considerably on his stories. This is not a collection of his stories from the last eight years. There's a lot of new reporting in here called Power Wars Inside Obama's Post-9-11 Presidency. I'll let you tell us what the book's about, and then we'll have a conversation. Uh, thanks, Jack. That was a very flattering introduction, and thanks also to the Hoover Institution and Lawfare for inviting me to do this. Um, I was a media fellow at Hoover a couple uh, years ago and spent a week out at Stanford, and also was, that was an enriching experience, so I'm, I'm grateful. Um, so Power Wars, when I think about what the origins of Power Wars, I think back, and I'm just going to talk very briefly, and then we'll get into the conversation, not give you my whole spiel, but uh, uh, I think back to that first week in, uh, of Obama's presidency after January 20, 2009, uh, and I and a few colleagues uh, at the New York Times, including Mark Mazzetti, who's in the audience here somewhere, had, you know, have been spending years chronicling these post-9-11 issues, detention and torture and interrogation and surveillance and drones. And uh, in very short order, Obama issues executive orders saying we're going to stop with all the undue secrecy, we're going to be so much more transparent, we're going to be the most transparent in, in history, 
We're going to close Guantanamo. We're going to close the CIA black site prisons. There's going to be no more torture. And, and it seemed like suddenly a huge corner was being turned. Like the war on terror was basically over overnight. Uh, normalcy was returning. And you know what were we going to do with ourselves? This is what we did for a living. We wrote about this stuff. That was the headline of the Washington Post. The war, Bush de Obama declares war on terrorism over. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I joked to one of my other colleagues who's not here tonight, I think, is Scott Shane, who also covers these issues, you know, I wonder if there's some openings in the sports department. We've got to pay our rent somehow. Uh, but, of course, very quickly it became apparent that there was going to be quite a bit left to write about. I would say by February 2009, it was clear to me that there was going to be much greater continuity between uh, the second-term Bush administration's counterterrorism policies and the Obama administration's counterterrorism policies. As people like Eric Holder and Leon Panetta came through confirmation hearings and affirmed that they thought it was lawful to hold terrorists um, in indefinite law of war detention without trial, even if Obama was going to close Guantanamo, his plan to close it was to hold them under that same legal authority somewhere else. Uh, they, they were going to continue to use rendition uh, with diplomatic assurances, which is essentially unchanged from the Bush policy. A uh, Justice Department lawyer went into a courtroom in San Francisco and said uh, that uh, in an ongoing surveillance lawsuit where the Bush administration had invoked the state secrets privilege, which used to drive the left crazy, and said, we're going to continue to use the state secrets privilege to get rid of this case. Uh, the, the new administration has vetted this, and yes, it's appropriate, we're going to keep going. And I remember, I, I, so I called up the White House and, and went in and said, I'm going to write a story saying, you know, the death of the war on terror may have been greatly overstated. Um, and I came in and I talked, they had me come in and I talked to Dennis McDonough and uh, uh, Greg Craig primarily. And they sort the of. The White House Counsel. The White House Counsel and, and the person who's now the Chief of Staff to, uh, to Barack Obama. And, the, you know, they. Did, Craig did most of the talking and he was sort of unapologetic. I tell the scene in the opening, of, or near the opening of the book. Uh, he talked about how they weren't going to have bumper sticker, knee-jerk reactions and just sort of throwing everything out overnight. They were going to be very calm. They were going to be very deliberate. They were going to be very careful. And to the Bush people who said that this is all the same and it's just vindicating Bush, no, that doesn't mean that they share the Bush worldview. But to the left, who is outraged that they haven't thrown it all out overnight, you know, give them time and they're going to be careful about this. And so they're charting their own course between these two poles of critique. And that basically, that moment extends to this day, where they're being attacked both by sort of an anti-Obama left and an anti-Obama right, who either sees him as too weak or totally unchanging and therefore retroactively legitimizing things that Democrats used to uh, criticize. Um, so, but it's all, that's all pretty, you know, simplistic. Uh, I, of course, love to dive into the weeds, maybe to my editor's so why dismay. Don't you, what, why don't you tell us, so that's kind of the conventional wisdom. What is your account? You have a couple of accounts. What is your account for the continuity? Because it was, whatever else it was, it was surprising to most people, the extent to which, and we can debate exactly what was changed and what was continued pretty clearly. The, he, end, he ended the, the black side in interrogation program of the CIA. <laughs> Um, and we can go through the list, but for most things in some form that looked a lot like what Bush was doing, things continued. So is that right, and why, why did it happen? So let me, let me say one more thing, and, and I'll transition. Okay, I'm that. sorry. Go so ahead. So 
Um, I ended up teaching, co-teaching a class on Constitution and National Security at Georgetown in the spring of 2013 and again in the spring of 2014. My co-teacher, uh, Mike Davidson, was the recently retired general counsel to the Senate Intelligence Committee under Feinstein and Rockefeller. And we had to design this class for educated non-lawyers about post-9-11 issues, basically. And, and we sort of worked it out thematically. This week was going to be surveillance week. This week was going to be detention week and so forth. Uh, and the question was sort of like, what does an educated person need to know to understand the recurring frictions in this post-9-11 world where either under a conservative Republican president or a liberal Democratic president, the same frictions keep recurring. The rules from the 20th century don't seem to have really been quite written for these 21st century challenges, and therefore there's a lot of play in the joints, even with very different administrations uh, sometimes finding themselves ending up in the same direction or at least uh, 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 consumed by the same problems. And fr from that course developed this book, which is sort of organized in a similar way. I wanted to tell these, get these issues out in a way that people who aren't lawyers could understand. I also wanted to fill in a lot of back, back room insider fly on the wall explanations of why are these issues such problems, issues are happening in the world, and the, here are the actual people who are in good faith trying to work them out. And then I wanted to answer some big quick picture questions, one of which is the one you just asked. You know, why is it that Ob Obama, the liberal constitutional lawyer who was going to have change from Bush's global war on terrorism, why is it we constantly hear he's acting like Bush? What is and, behind and that? And as you point out, <clears throat> his top lawyers who came in were all distinguished, either academics or practitioners, all of whom had come in promising a very different uh, approach. That's right. Um, and so. A lot of the book is, is, is in these, these episodes and these particular issues that arose. But from the constellation of these episodes and anecdotes, and uh, some certain themes and patterns emerge. And one of them, which I think is crucial to understanding the disconnect, is what I call, um, what, is what I identify as a disagreement about what it means to act like Bush. And during the Bush years, there was, I think it's easier to see now than it was at the time, two very different strands of criticism among the left and some on the right as well, the libertarian right, of what Bush and Cheney were doing. There was the rule of law critique and there was the civil liberties critique. So the civil liberties critique says military commissions or warrantless surveillance or whatnot are just inherently wrong. The state should not have these powers vis-a-vis -vis individual rights. The rule of law critique is sort of agnostic about whether this policy makes sense, but says the president went about establishing them the wrong way. He blew through statutory constraints. He should have gone to Congress to get the law changed if it forbid things like wiretapping without warrants on US soil. He can't just say he's the commander in chief, and so there are no rules. Um, and usually in the Bush years, there, you know, people were making these points side by side on the same panel discussion. Sometimes the same person was making both of them, at this, and it wasn't really clear that there was a line between them. But there actually is a huge difference between them because the rule of law problem can be solved. If Congress changes the law to bring it into alignment with what the government's already doing, and there's a firmer legal basis going forward, and, you're th and you think of the problem as being a rule of law problem, you are satisfied. Or if a court blesses it. Or if a court blesses it uh, under some kind of statutory interpretation, as we know now this, the intelligence court was doing in secret in the second, mostly in the second term of Bush. And so the Obama, and the second part of this insight is that the Obama administration is an extremely lawyerly, uh, an, undo, you know, an amazingly lawyerly 
administration, maybe the most lawyerly ever. Uh, Obama's a lawyer, Biden's a lawyer, Bush and Cheney were not lawyers. They're filling policy-making roles with people who went to law school. They are extremely interested in the law. They're trained to think like lawyers. They're trained to look for the legal issues and issue spot them as they work through issues, which doesn't mean the law dictates every outcome. Military, political, policy issue uh, 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 concerns are also factors. But it means that they are very predisposed to have been the people who were making the rule of law critique rather than the civil liberties critique. And so, so much had changed by January of 2009. Congress had passed the FISA Amendments Act. Congress had passed the Military Commissions Act. The FISA Court had approved the pieces of the Stellar Wind program that we don't find out about until Edward Snowden leaks those details. And from that vantage point, a lot of the problem had already been fixed. There was still more to fix. They had a little bit more to do. They wanted to wind down things. They certainly wanted to close Guantanamo. Uh, they certainly were not going to have uh, a door open to torture, but it doesn't. It does mean that when the ACLU says, "Why are you doing this? This is acting like Bush. You have a warrantless wiretapping program," the Obama mindset is, "No, it's not having that program that's acting like Bush. It's violating FISA to have that program, and we're not doing that. We're acting pursuant to statutory authority." And so this is where this Bush disconnect comes from. That was acting pursuant to FISA. Right. So one, towards one, the end of Bush, one, yes. One 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 um, disagreement I have with you on this is I do agree that the rule of law, the process was flawed, the support, the authorization wasn't there, the president was acting unilaterally in an, in an inappropriate context. You famously think that, that's right. I, I think that, that's one side of it. I'm not sure which part I famously think, but that's one, one part. <laughs> the other part is, this stuff is just all wrong, we shouldn't be doing any of this stuff, and it was more substantive rather than process. But I don't think that, there would, if it was just, if the Obama team had just come in with a rule of law critique, there would have been no surprise. The expectations that were set by the president and his rhetoric and by the team and his rhetoric, I agree with you that some of their talk had little wiggle room to make you think that if you read it carefully after the fact, what they might have, they might be able to hold on to military commissions if they're properly constituted and the like. There were other members of the Obama team who were just against a lot of it. So I think as an explanation for continuity, I agree that certainly there have been massive reforms by 2009, both internal to the executive branch and because of Congress and because of the courts. But I'm not, sh and I think that explains why not much changed. There have been already massive change. But I don't think that the Obama people were just interested in the rule of law critique. They came in setting different expectations about the way things would be done. That's why everyone was so surprised. Is well, so I would, I would, you know, of, of course, when you say the Obama people already were oversimplifying, yes, right? right. There's lots of different people. There's there's Harold Coe, and he might see the world very differently than Jay Johnson. What was the main message being sent by the administration on these issues? Well, I, so I would start before the administration. And in chapter two of the book, I go back and I look at Obama's rhetoric when he's running for president, which is where the origin of these, these expectations gets set. And you have to remember, uh, he is running for the Democratic primary nomination against Hillary Clinton and John Edwards and so forth, seeking the allegiance of a base that hates Bush and hates yep. Cheney, and right. it's just spun up about everything. Right. I just can't, you know, and no one who was nuanced was about, well, the policy's okay, but uh, we just need better legal authority or whatever, or especially no one who was saying, that was a problem in 02, but it's not a problem today in 07, is going to win that primary. Right. And, 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 uh, but w they were careful. And I tell some stories about Obama's speech at the Woodrow Wilson Center in August of 2007, when he, this is his big national security policy speech, where he's going to sort of present his unified framework as a potential president, this sort of one-term senator, uh, major speech. And 
early drafts said, I'm, a, you know, I'm against military commissions, full stop, period. And uh, his, one of his legal advisors, Jay Johnson, who goes on to be general counsel of the Pentagon and now uh, Homeland Security Secretary, says, whoa, you don't want to close the door on this stuff. You're going to become president. You don't know what problems are going to arise. You need to leave yourself some flexibility. So they rewrite it to be, I am against the Military Commissions Act of 2006. And, or, you know, and, and the casual listener hears he's against military commissions. Right. Not he's left the door open to be in favor of military commissions under the 2009 version. But my point is that that was purposeful. That was not... A, yeah, he was a politician. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So there's a reason. So the way I would put it, and you can disagree and then we'll move on, is that the administration was purposefully ambiguous, as politicians tend to be. The rhetoric was there's going to be major change, and there was a lot of rhetoric about major change. If you looked at the details, there was they, they kept themselves wiggle room on a lot of things. And so they get in there, and as you say, things weren't as bad as they thought they were going to be. The state secret st stuff they were surprised about. Some of them were surprised about the extent to which the detainees in Gitmo were, as dan were dangerous. They get in there, and there's just not as much room for them to improve things on the rule of law front because they've been changed so much. Is that... Uh, I guess that's that's generally fair. I mean, you, I, when you when you raise, for example, they keep all the state secrets assertions yeah. that they that Bush had made, um, and they, they I had this whole behind the scenes story. Where they convened this task force, and John Verrilli, who's now the Solicitor General, but then was working in the Deputy Attorney General's office, is overseeing it, and they're going to go through every case, and they're going to go through all the filings, and they go in expecting to find really flimsy you know, assertions that are not credible and they're just there to cover up abuses, which had, which had been the sort of democratic critique of Bush's really unprecedented scale, which, which he was using state secrets to try to kill entire lawsuits. And they find to their, you know, dismay that every single one of those assertions actually comes with a binder like this that the judge had seen, and they all actually seem to make sense, and they can't dislodge any of them. Now, I don't say, well, that means that we're, they were they all made sense. I'm sort of more agnostic about yeah. that. I say one way of looking at that is, well, the democratic critiques of Bush were overblown. Another way of looking at that is they went native in the executive branch and they sold out to the national security state and, and you know, and, and now that the power was theirs, they were, you know, saw things differently. You, you know, project what you want onto that right. fact pattern, but that was the, the fact point, pattern. Right. Okay. So, so one explanation for continuity is that the rule of law that there had already been process pushback and that the, a lot of the policies had been legitimated by January 2009. Mm. Another one is, is that on some issues, things weren't as bad as they thought they were going to be on the inside. A third one is, and, and you frame the first part of the book about this, around this, and that's the December 2009 failed attempt in the, in the airplane over, bombing attempt in the airplane over Detroit. So could you briefly sort of tell us what happened there and why that was such a pivotal event, especially the part that captured that I thought was most compelling was the president's uh, his, change in his, attitude. His directive, his change in attitude, and his directive to the cabinet, which reminded me of George Bush's directive to the cabinet. Uh, the strict scrutiny. Yeah. Um, and, you, and you call this Obama's 9/11. That's right. So the opening trio of chapters, the book is divided into four quadrants. The first is Obama's 9/11, which opens with a reconstruction of the 12 hours from when Abdul Muttalib prepares to blow up the plane. And flying into Detroit on Christmas 2009, to the point at the end of that day where the FBI reads him his Miranda rights, which are which obviously became a hugely controversial issue later. And I sort of reconstruct who actually made that decision and how the political rhetoric about it was completely divorced from reality. 
And then the second chapter goes into some big issues things. And then the third chapter returns to December 26 and takes you to early February of 2010. And that's basically the worst month of Obama's presidency for national security policy, where everything that they're trying to do falls apart. Um, and even though this bomb failed to explode and 300 people are not killed, it's this the grace of God, right? It's total luck that it doesn't go off. It's not that there was some system that worked. And um, suddenly... Even though the Homeland Security Director said the system worked. That's true. I mean, she had this sort of st stupid gaffe where she right. said that what she meant was as soon as the incident had happened, we responded the right well, way. It was hurtful we, politically. Yeah, but it was, yeah. And that, that kept escalating the winds. And, you know, Republicans were on their back after the 2008 election. Obama had just whomped them. And they, the Democrats had a 60-vote filibuster-proof majority in the Senate, and they looked like they were really, and suddenly they were getting traction really for the first time. And in particular, of particular importance is Scott Brown rides this wave of fear over from the terror attack into victory in, for Ted Kennedy's seat in the most liberal state in America. A Republican wins that seat. And you know, people at the time thought, oh, that was about health care. But no, the internal polling from the Brown campaign, which gets shared with the Republican Party widely, shows it was his attacking of Obama and Martha Coakley for treating terrorists like ordinary criminals that more than anything won that election for him. Uh, this was the meme that grew out of the response to the end of Obama. That's right. And, and, but it was that, and it also sort of escalated some criticism that had been percolating about Eric Holder's decision to move KSM and the other four 9-11 defendants into a regular court and try them in New York. Uh, and that, of course, even the you know, political support for that melts away. Uh, and with the Scott Brown victory and so forth, and Republicans suddenly see, have this issue that they can seize on. Um, the, I think it, both internally, the sort of gut clinch moment of this almost happened on their watch, and externally seeing how the political winds are, have shifted dramatically, uh, it drove home to this administration that if there was an attack that succeeded, it would destroy the administration. Obama would be a failed one-term president. Everything they were trying to do, not just trying to sort of scale back the wars in the Middle East and get rid of torture, and, but also the things like health care, all of that would go to, to become and dust. And you basically report the president saying something to this effect in the cabinet meeting. Yeah, so he, I have seen, this is part of my like the most loyally administration ever. You know, he's just driving home the point this is not going to happen again. And they had this long meeting about everything that went wrong and what did your agency do wrong, what did your agency do wrong. And then he says, um, right, so, you know, everyone gets a, basically gets a pass this time, but it, if, if this ever happens again, people will be fired. It's strict liability, right? The lawyer term for it doesn't matter if it was really your fault, I'm going to fire you. Um, uh, and that's how he can, chooses to convey the new seriousness. And up and down, you know, I have, I have people on the record talking about how in the first year he would listen to these briefings on terrorism issues. Oh, Zazie is going to attack New York, but we caught him. Don't worry, boss. Um, and take it in. But he was dealing with the economy. He was dealing with health care. He was dealing with all this stuff. And at that point, it changes. And he's, he's playing offense. He's blocking and tackling. He wants to know if they need more help. The political people start showing up to the terrorism briefings. They are getting much more serious. And at that point, so it's not like this was a turning point and there had been no sign of compromise right. and turbulence, but it was ambiguous, and they were still kind of doing what they wanted to do, even with some problems. The reformist voices get a lot quieter at that point, right. and the security state voices get a lot louder right. going forward. And you basically say that was the, the death knell for closing Gitmo. It was yep. soon thereafter, I think, that the transfer restrictions, were they just before or just after? The so the first transfer restrictions happened before, in the summer of 2009 right. when, when they were going to bring some Uyghurs and release them. 
uh, in a Sorry. now and then this is when it gets very serious and, and the Democratic Congress is going to ban transfers into the U.S. soil entirely uh, and that leads to I mean it takes another year for the NDAA to get passed but that's it's this moment where it gets drafted and Obama bans transfers to Yemen uh, which means Gitmo is not going to close because there's so many low-level Yemenis there. That's the, the number one problem in Gitmo. It also basically prevents Eric Holder from being able to bring KSM to New York. It's the cause of that changing. Which was symbolically the number one restoring the rule of law move in the first right. year of the administration. And they couldn't do that because politics just turned against right. them. But it's not that they didn't want to do it. It's just they, they couldn't the figure out a way to get there. Well, the politics turned against Absolutely. them. Absolutely. And also, I think you suggest that the transparency initiatives became that became harder to do, and people weren't as interested in being as open when they started. There's all kinds of things you can tie to that moment. And when I, in my surveillance chapters, you know, Ron Wyden and Dick Durbin and a couple other people, Russ Feingold, were really pushing. This is when the Patriot Act is going to be reauthorized. They were really, really pushing to declassify the fact that the government was secretly interpreting Section 215 to, meet, to permit bulk collection of data about Americans. Maybe not phone records, but at least the notion that relevant could mean everything. That before they reauthorized that, the public needed to know that. And it's, it's like January 4th or something like that, Eric Holder writes back and says, that the intelligence community has decided we're not going to do this. Right. Okay, so that's the continuity story, but then the Obama administration starts to take on a life of its own. The politics have changed a little bit. They're more experienced. And, and you tell the, the story right up until last summer of the basic counterterrorism decisions, the legal debates and, and decisions made in connection with that. So I want to talk for now about the extent to which the Obama lawyers and the Obama um, team, national security team, became what I would call aggressive on national security, the, the extent to which they started making, which from some people's perspective was very surprising, aggressive interpretations of the law to empower the president over time. So the use of force in uh, Libya, the war powers resolution interpretation to say that it wasn't hostilities in Libya, all of which you covered in great detail and which you expand on in here. The extension of, I'll just mention a few examples, the extension of the 2001 AUMF to include ISIS, mm -hmm. uh, which is a non-obvious extension. The, uh, the constitutional override argument that was implicit and to some extent explicit in the Bowie Bergdahl transfer, and other things, the, 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 the authorization to kill the American citizen abroad and the basic expansion of the legal authorities for the drone war, for the use of force uh, against terrorists, all of these things, many people believe, are basically expansions, large expansions to some extent, or at least novel expansions of the president's war powers that people were surprised about, a lot of people were surprised about. So, and then the puzzle is, well, I thought you had all these very careful lawyers who were against this stuff. And um, so you've got some explanations for this. So how do you account for, and also I'll, we'll talk about the substance, then we'll go to process. Well, so, so I, my I, question I, I, is, yeah. what is your story about the president becoming more, do you think it's true that he became more aggressive over time using executive power and expanding his authorities? I guess I would, I would answer that first by sort of querying what you mean by executive authorities. I, so a root cause of a lot of the, uh, I think, left-wing disappointment with Obama is stems from a rarely remarked upon premise. The left, some of the left still to this day uh, do reject the idea that this is actually war. Right. That this is a, a for real, no kidding, armed conflict with Al-Qaeda that Congress has authorized and the Supreme Court has endorsed. Obama uh, and the people around him clearly embrace 
do not reject the idea that this is war. And Obama says this is war, and he says it over and over again, even yeah. though the right loves to say he thinks it's not war. They clearly accept that the tools that come with war, the powers that come with war, are available to them uh, when they're dealing with these problems. That doesn't mean that they want to use them as aggressively necessarily as, say, the Bush administration did, but they are also not repudiating them. And so when they're confronted with some problem like the untriable, unreleasable Guantanamo right. detainee, they, about, they, they use the, it. I'm talking about the new stuff. The new stuff. Right. Yeah. Well, I just, well, I just want to get this on the record, yeah. right? And so they, nevertheless, they don't want to use it as much. And so when new, when new terrorists are captured, alleged terrorists, they never send them to Guantanamo. Yeah. They send them to regular courts. And so there's a, there's a way in which this continuity narrative can be overstated depending the, on where you're looking. I think those, again, I'm moving beyond continuity. I think the two, the two clearest changes in policy yeah. that they could control are the ending of the CIA program and the refu three, the refusal to bring new detainees to Gitmo, and the attempts, I think successful, to try people like Warsami, terrorists picked up abroad, rather than detaining them, to bring them to the United States and, and try them in civilian court. That's right. So I think those are three large policy changes. I thought it was important to get that on the record. Yeah. So as far as the new stuff, I mean, some of this is new, new problems are arising. You know, the number one problem where arising from this moment we were just talking about, the, the underwear bombing, is the realization that Anwar Alaki, the U.S. citizen, apparently is, according to Abdul Muttalib himself, not just a crazy Muslim radical cleric who's saying, you know, jihad is good on the internet anymore, but is in fact coming up with operational plots and sending yep. people to go kill Americans. Uh, and that raises a problem that the Bush administration never faced, which was, what do you do when you have, and let's stipulate for a moment, a guy like that, in a place where we have no troops on the ground to arrest him, and Yemen has no real government outside of you know the capital city, they have no ability to arrest him, and so the question is, but you might be able to see him from the air, and so do you can you take the shot or do you have to just wait and hope that every time the bomb doesn't go off, uh, and so that raises uh, a whole new nest of unprecedented legal questions, uh, and they of course famously decide yes it would be legal. Uh, as part of this war, or as a matter of self-defense, to kill him upon uh, upon sight. Uh, so, so to be clear, I have no trouble with the legal opinion. I think it's sound. That was not the view of people on the left or the right, a lot of people. That was a, it was a controversial decision. You could have imagined them saying, we're not going to do that. But the imperatives to do it were pretty clear, and the lawyers had a pretty compelling argument. I'm thinking more, though, the president well, really... Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was thinking, you know... If he was who they said he was, I think a lot of people were persuaded. It's a tough situation. Yeah, the question. The problem yeah, the is that they, they were so secretive about both the legal reasoning about the scope and limits of this precedent, yeah. the the authority that they were the calling out for the president. What when can an American abroad be targeted? They weren't going to release the memos. We had to fight for years in court to get them out, just to, so people could look at them and argue about them and say yes, we agree or no, we don't. And to this day, they are very secretive about. <laughs> the legal basis, the evidentiary basis. Uh, Understandably. The, years yeah. later, well, years later, a big part of it is Abdul Muttalib's, the transcripts of his statements to the FBI interrogators in January of 2010. Uh, there's no sources and methods issue there. It was Abdul Muttalib that was the source. They still will not put those transcripts out. Uh, my colleague Scott Shane's been trying to get them, and they won't. And, you know, I, so a, a lot of my critique of this administration running through all these issues, running through this book is a transparency critique. Maybe that the dilemmas raised by this situation necessitate X, but you can't say trust us. 
The Bush administration couldn't say trust us. You don't get to say trust us either. But I'm not. I'm, so I'm not. I'm actually not trying to critique them. I'm trying to understand what led. So let's take the clearest, cleanest case: okay. Libya. Libya was a case that you gave this famous questionnaire in 2008 that asked candidate Obama his views on various things. And I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says, absolute terms, no using military force without congressional authorization unless it's in self-defense. That's one of the clearest things he said in that questionnaire. Libya comes up, uses military force without self, without, in, a, in a context that he said wasn't um, yeah, available. available. And then 60 days later, uh, uses a very, I, I do think, unconvincing interpretation of the War Powers Resolution. So that's an example where it's surprising the president is doing this, and it's surprising that they are stretching the precedents in a way that empowers the president to do something he said he didn't think he had the legal authority to do. And I can get there are other examples like that, the Bowie Bergdahl and maybe a couple of others. And the question is, how did the administration and the lawyers get there? I, I can offer some theories, but... Well, so I, a lot of this executive power... Um, these issues I tell in chapter, I work through in, mostly in chapter 12 of the book, which is called The Tug of War, and it's partially about war powers and how Obama wants to get out of the war and the, t the war tugs him back in, and it's partially about the sort of standard tug of war between Congress and the president. Um, it's clear, it's clear to, the, to all that Obama evolves in office and he becomes more unilateral over time. Right. And that happens as the foil shifts from he's not going to be Bush and Cheney to he's going to govern despite Republican congressional obstructionism in his eyes. And that uh, starts to happen, and I think Libya is in a particularly, as, I, as you know from reading the book, is a, particular, a pivotal moment for that. Even though most of his unilateralism would go on to play out in domestic affairs, like immigration and so forth, it's Libya that teaches him how to do it and sort of breaks the seal. Yeah. Uh, it and, wasn't so bad. We can do that. We, right? And, and it's, it, it has to do with a Congress that, from his vantage point, is paralyzed, is dysfunctional, is not able to act, is not able to perform its function. And in that situation, he was being told uh, by congressional leaders of both parties, okay. it's okay. The Senate had voted uh, unanimously for an, a no-fly zone. Suddenly the UN is, approves it. Uh, Gaddafi is saying these sociopathic things about how he's about to massacre everyone in Benghazi. But the House, the sort of newly Tea Party House, is totally wrecked by a budget battle. There's been like two-week extension to keep the government open, and then three, the Tea Party caucus won't vote with Boehner, and he has to rely on Democratic votes to get this budget passed. And everyone's going home already when suddenly the politics in the United Nations shift. And he's faced with this dilemma. He can act and violate his previously stated principles about the limits of executive war-making power, unilateral, but save all these people in, Guanta uh, sorry, in, in Benghazi with apparently the tacit acceptance of the Congress, right. or even encouraged, they just haven't formally checked the box. Or uh, I would say it's a little more than that. Well, they that, didn't vote to authorize them to use force as well. That's right. But uh, the Senate had, a, a couple weeks earlier, unanimously voted for the, imp the imposition of a no-fly zone. Um, or he can stick to this previous principle, and because Congress didn't act, the U.S. doesn't act, and all these people die. Right. And so he chooses to act, right? right? And there's some complaining about it, but sort of life goes on. And it teaches him that uh, sometimes to, you know, the world is on fire, and if you need the, fr the Congress to act before you can do something, then congressional dysfunction ties your hands. But if you just act and wait for them to respond in some definitive way, congressional dysfunction empowers you because they're never going to be able to get their act together enough to do it. And so they've essentially acquiesced. The, the early George Bush philosophy. Right, so remember, remember the House votes 
on three different propositions about yeah. Libya. They vote to authorize the war, they vote to forbid the war and demand it to be over, and right. then they vote for a sort of war light where we supply allies but we don't drop bombs. All three of these fail because there's about a third of the House that yeah, wants I each think. of them. And so it's, you know, then what do you do in that situation? And, and, but that lesson then applies beyond and beyond. Right. But it's more than that. I mean, first of all, that sounds a lot like what George W. Bush did. Military Commissions Act first let them respond, and a lot of things he did that. But it's more than that. I mean, it was, it was an aggressive use of Article II power, and um, that went beyond presidents in some respects. And the War Powers Resolution decision, and this gets us into the process failures also, the War Powers Resolution decision was the consensus among the lawyers was that, that, that the War Powers Resolution you don't quite say required him to stop, but that was the best reading of the War Powers Resolution because hostilities have been going on for 60 days. Before we get to that, let's stop and talk about quickly about, because we haven't, about the lawyers group. This was, because that, that comes up here in the War Powers Resolution, it gets bypassed, the process breaks down. Yes. But could you just say briefly, tell about the lawyers group that Donlan instituted, how it differed from past administrations, why they did it, and then we can talk about how it failed in the War Powers Resolution case. So the Interagency Lawyers Group is a panel of the sort of top lawyers of six agencies chaired by the National Security Council legal advisor. It dates back to the end of the first Bush administration, I believe, when the institution of the National Security Council legal advisor is created as part of the post-Iran-Contra reforms. Uh, and it sort of had waxed and waned in the 90s. Uh, is uh, John Bellinger here has taken me to task for overstating the notion that it was essentially dismantled under Bush, but it was, especially in the first term, cut out of a lot of decisions. It still met, as, if I understand it, to deal with covert actions, uh, but not. it certainly wasn't the place where all the interesting issues were being fully aired and ventilated. Uh, it, and when the Tom Donilon, who becomes now Tom, uh, Obama's national security advisor, but uh, and even in the beginning as Deputy National Security Advisor and in, in charge of the transition, has been studying this. He's been studying uh, John's old boss's memoir, Condi Rice, and she talks about how military commissions were created with her not even knowing that they was in the works, and it, this sort of dysfunctional decision-making process. And he decides we're going to have a robust interagency lawyers group that filters everything at the president's level, at the principal's committee level, at the deputy's level, at the working group level. It's all going to go through this. This is State Department, DOD civilian, DOD joint chiefs, um, CIA, and NSC legal advisor. And so they meet, and they meet all the time. And every interesting issue is being pushed through this group most of the time, with a few very notable exceptions, which you just, you just hinted so, at. So just because this is a central defining characteristic of the way That's Obama right. does law. The lawyers from all the relevant agencies meet together and they hash them through at a pretty intense way. Yes, and, and which they, gives them the first cut at a lot of policy issues. A lot of decisions. policy issues. And, and it works you know, pretty robustly for the whole administration. It breaks down the war powers resolution context. And, and it's kind of an, it's an amazing set scene. Which I'll, I'll give it briefly and you tell me if I get it right. Basically, the, the question is whether the president continues bombing Libya after 60 days, which the war powers resolution requires him, if it's constitutional, which the Obama administration thinks it is, requires him to cease engaging in hostilities unless Congress has authorized the conflict. And so 60 days are coming up. It seems like they didn't get their act together very quick very, in they time. They kept hoping Congress was going to save them. Right. It wasn't. And then basically there's a consensus in the lawyers group that they need to dial back to satisfy the war powers resolution. 
then you talk about a cabinet meeting which the president goes and he basically i imagine it this way you didn't go into this detail but he's told we really need to keep this up and he decides he wants to keep it up and he's advised by the white house counsel that there's another theory that you call legally available but not the best interpretation he doesn't reconvene the lawyers group he doesn't embrace the justice department view that's the biggest process failure i think and it was also one of the most controversial legal decisions i think of the administration is that fair i think that is fair yeah. So the, 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 the lawyers group has a consensus view that the best reading of the law is we've got to ratchet back our direct kinetic action. I, w I mean, it's not quite that black and white. It's like we have the best defensible option if we do this. We have a slightly less defensible option. But that's, that's basically it. Uh, but that would require interfering with this operation, and Qaddafi hasn't fallen yet. And the whole, you know, if we stop using our, especially our armed predator drones, which only we have, and radar-seeking missiles, which only we have, so our allies can't pick up that slack, it's going to dramatically increase the chances of uh, chemical weapons getting loose or a uh, plane getting shot down. Obama's not willing to take, doesn't want to take that risk uh, and thinks that it's sort of clown show in Congress anyway that they haven't voted for this thing when they were all for it before it happened. Uh, and so an alternative theory is developed primarily by his White House counsel working with the State Department legal advisor that maybe hostilities as defined in this but not defined, a word, the word hostility, which has no definition in the War Powers Resolution, passed in the wake of the Vietnam War, doesn't apply to an air-only multilateral UN operation that doesn't have troops on the ground. They were, that was about you know, major ground wars like Vietnam. And, yeah. and, and Obama goes with this. He's advised this is not the consensus view of the best reading of the law, but it is legally available. And it's, you know, so much in executive branch lawyering is these what's legally available versus off the wall in this context where a lot of it's happening behind closed doors, you're building on executive branch precedents, which are always going to be pointing you know, in the sort of expedient direction, and there's never going to be a court that issues a definitive right. uh, ruling that you're right or you're wrong, and suddenly there's a lot of play in the joints. But I don't think anyone would defend, in either administration, would defend legally available as the proper standard. I mean, that was, that was, that's more like a litigation standard, or can we pursue this claim? It's not what, it's not what the government lawyers typically the kind of advice he's giving. Yeah. So it was an unusual situation, and Bauer, as you tell the story, was clear about that. He was very clear about the way to If advice. Bauer warned Obama, he would yeah. be criticized yeah. for, for uh, choosing to take that but option. Several times you, you've used the kind of explanation that it was a clown show in Congress. Congress wasn't on board. So I agree that Congress is often dysfunctional, and I agree that Congress often, and I would say usually, doesn't, doesn't uh, let me take the fig leaf that that's how they saw it. Okay, that's fine. That's how they saw it. Yeah, right. Okay. Who me? But, but I have to say that's not a for, for an administration that that said no skirting the law because it's inconvenient. That was one of the president's big pitches. The idea that Congress is a clown show is not a very good response. I mean, the president history shows that it's the president. I mean, this is the way the system works. The president usually gets from Congress when he goes up there and demands that it makes the case. My sense is that on a whole range of issues. Obama hasn't engaged Congress because I do think they think it's a clown show. I think they can't think they can't make headway, and they're just going to do things on their own. And they've been doing that more and more. I think. I think. That's well, the, yes, but uh, you know, when you say history has shown when the president asks for things, he gets it. In, you I know, think, query whether in, in we're AUMF context. Well, he asked for an AUMF for ISIL. So let me say that's the that's what I mean when it, when the president. Every I went through this once. Every AUMF since the 1950s that a president sought for. The president actually sent up something early and went up there and fought for it and spent a lot of political capital. And it often, it doesn't take that after 9-11, but it takes that in, for, to go into Iraq in 2002. 
And Obama is different in not expending the capital. I mean, I think maybe because of what happened early in the administration, but I think they got more and more comfortable with coming up in theories, with theories allowing them to do it alone. Well, I, the, the problem is, you know, if you stipulate that Congress at times has been totally dysfunctional in this administration, the, and then the president is faced with a situation of letting the world burn or, you know, compromising his abstract principles. The problem with that, with, of course, is it becomes easier and easier just to say, ah, you're just dysfunctional. Even when Congress is being totally functional, they just don't agree with what you're asking exactly. for, which is different than being unable to even vote on something. So, when, look, when I, early in the Bush administration, when I would talk to people about these issues, why can't we go to Congress about this? It was basically that argument. The world is burning. Congress might not give us what we want. We have to act here. We're responsible. And I think over time, that mindset, I think every president... Well, well I mean, you know better than me what it was like inside the Bush administration in the first term. But I think that was, that was also coupled with an ideological desire no. not to go to Congress as an end to itself, not exactly. to acknowledge that Congress even should have a say, even right. if it was functioning, based on this sort of, you know, 70s Cheney so era. And that, that's, not, that's totally lacking in this yeah, administration. I agree. So I agree. They had two completely different theories about executive power and about Congress. And one, in theory, really wanted to work with Congress, and one, in theory, didn't. But the point is, they ended up basically doing the same thing. They basically had a view of Congress that this is not going to work for us. We need to act here. Let's do it. We have a theory. I think that's the way it became over time. Anyway, let me, let's move on. We're, we're, we're running out of time. I want to get to three more questions quickly. All right. First, um, so talk briefly, if you could, about Gitmo. A lot of the book is, is, is very compelling in telling the back and forth and the failed attempts over and over to deal with it with you, you talk compellingly about early on they couldn't they they had the opportunity to bring the detainees here before the restrictions came about and they politics and disorganization preempted it then the transfer restrictions with the, that congress imposed in 2009 i think that they're increasingly dealing with and they start ratcheting up yeah. it starts ratcheting up and so that's been going on and now we're in a situation where as ben Wittes wrote it looks like we're coming to the end game so how do you, can, can you just tell us how you see the Gitmo issue, whether it's a possibility that the president's actually going to override the transfer restrictions? Well, you and I have been talking about this for a long time. I mean, I'm fascinated by it. It would be the last, the per, you know, what he either does or he doesn't t make a George W. Bush-like Article II override claim at the end of his presidency to solve this problem he's been trying to solve since day one. That should be the final scene of the book, but it, I wrote it when he's right. still president, so I don't know what he's going to do. Um, the paperback will be so complete. Uh, this is only 700 pages. The paperback will be 1,000 pages. Um, it, it, it will be if he overrides the transfers. <laughs> um, I think at this point, Obama really, really wants to close Guantanamo. Yeah. He, he genuinely believes it's bad for national security and it wastes money. On top of that, it's one of his highest profile you know, policy agenda items that he said he was going to do that he can't, just hasn't been able to get done. He's thinking about his presidential library and what that wall is going to say. He said he was going to do it and he failed, or he got it done. And uh, it's clear to me from everyone I know inside the administration that he is the number one guy pushing and pushing. And a lot of the people around him are diligently trying to do what the boss wants, but they're, they, you know, they don't think that the chances of this are very good. Certainly, they don't think Congress is going to lift these restrictions. I think, I think it's, it's been clear to me for a long time Congress isn't going to lift yeah, these restrictions. Right. John McCain goes around saying, well, give us a plan, and maybe we'll do it. First of all, they've had a plan since 2009. The plan that's going to come out at the end of this week or next week is the same plan. It's totally Potemkin, this idea of a plan. And, but part two, 
no one in the House Republican caucus cares what John McCain thinks. And so he can't bring the other half of Congress. It's going to take an affirmative act to change it. Uh, and, and so I think at this point, it, well, the, the new NDAA, Obama is going to sign and it's going to extend the, the, even beyond. Right. So he, Obama is going to be faced with a dilemma. Yeah. He's either going to fail, it's either going to be policy failure or it's going to be make this kind of commander in chief override claim, which for all the talk about Obama's turn to unilateralism is a very different animal than just saying prosecutorial discretion can be invoked in immigration in the following way. Right. To act in the teeth of a statute uh, in this way for six years. would be uh, yeah. that he's been acquiescing to, uh, first acquiescing, then complaining and signing statements, right. but still acquiescing in practice would but be quite extraordinary. But the constitutional objections in this Yes, case. he has. So I, I ended my review of your book today by saying the fact that we don't know what the president will act, whether he'll do that and whether his lawyers will tell him that he can do it, override the statute, says a lot about how, the fact that we don't know the answer to that says a lot about how far the administration has traveled, because that's not a question I think that that would have been answered in, even possibly in the affirmative at the beginning. Okay, let me ask you a final question, we'll wrap up. So I read the book very carefully, a couple of times actually, and thank you. so people inside the administration who work as lawyers like me, they tend to think that law is, and lawyers are consequential. That, that we're down in the weeds, that we, 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 there's a lot of stuff that lawyers say no to that never makes it to the president. There's a lot of operations that want, that some people want to do in a counterterrorism situation that never get asked because they just know they can't go there. That lawyers say no all the time, but you don't see it. And then there's a few cases where the lawyers say no in a higher profile case. And then the lawyers always think when they approve an action, at least many lawyers do, they're doing it on narrow terms and they have full support for it. And that's the kind of the executive branch lawyer's perspective, that law and lawyers are consequential. So reading this book, I predict that the peop many people who read this book will come away thinking the law and lawyers, there's a, there was, you know, you had these, these lawyers coming in who were committed to being different, and you still see over time, especially the growth of executive power. Some people, I think, are going to react by saying are, that law and lawyers aren't consequential. And I think, and I read that same book a couple of times, you seem to go back and forth on this in the book. You seem to, you ask at one point, what difference does it make if you give an aggressive interpretation to a statute to say the president can do it, or if you disregard the statute if you're reaching the same point. And there are several points in the book like that. So I guess by wrap, in wrapping up, you're, you're the person that talks to these people who's on the outside and has a little bit more of an objective say. And I, I couldn't really tell what you thought about the answer to this question. Are lawyers and law consequential in what ways, at what level? And well, I, I, the, fir the first part of that is they're hugely consequential. They're hugely consequential whether they're, you know, Greg Craig and Harold Coe on the liberal end of the spectrum or David Addington and John Yoo on the conservative end of the spectrum. Uh, but especially, in, you know, all these issues after 9-11 where the legal question is so unclear, you can't understand what you're looking at if you don't have a legal vocabulary and you don't understand what the legal arguments were. That doesn't mean that the law dictated every outcome, as right. I say several times, right? It's one factor among many, but especially in this administration, it disciplines how they think about it. Quite, your question is, does it ever really actually stop them from doing something so at the end of the day? It seems to be the situation where, so I agree with that. That's kind of what I said in my review today. I think the law and lawyers are very consequential, especially, as you say, you can't even understand the issues until really, as weird as it seems, until the lawyers can come and kind of filter them and understand what your options are to some extent. Yeah. I guess in the high-profile cases where the president really wants to achieve something, 
and the law is either there's so many times that the law is unsettled or unclear or and you can certainly find legally available if not best interpretation of the law there weren't any examples uh, i think in the book where there's something high profile like that where a lawyer said no which is understandable there's a few. except one well which the, one are you the, thinking the biggest one is closing gitmo i mean well that's, there's that. There's well, maybe we'll see, right? But I mean, there's a few others. There's not yeah. bringing Doc Duke out of Iraq, the yeah. last prisoner, when they couldn't but, figure but out I, a way. But I think it. of that as a retail level. I'm talking about: Are we going to bomb Libya? Are we going? Are we going to kill an American citizen? That's a higher profile issue. I think on the the, the more important the issue is to the president, the less likely the lawyer is going to be able to well, say no. I don't think that's a failure of law, by the way. But I want to know what you, what you well, think. Well, let, let me just answer this this way, which is not quite on point, but okay. you know, it's, with a certain degree of humility. Like, first of all, I'm obsessed with executive branch lawyering, right? I'm a student of it. I've been writing about it for ten years. As a non-lawyer with just a little dilettantish understanding of the law, I sort of see my mission to go take go to this esoteric secret world, understand what they're fighting about, and try to translate it to a lay audience. I think it's hugely important to so much of what's going on and understanding what the lawyers are fighting about today while they're still fighting about it is really often the only time to influence what's going to be happening tomorrow by the time we find out about it in national security. So all that. And, and I see executive branch lawyering because of what, some of the things I mentioned earlier about the lack of judicial constraint usually or even the expectation of judicial constraint and the, the sort of relying on previous executive branch lawyers' memos as, as precedent, even though even the public never even get to see them most of the time, as creating a kind of pressure point in our democracy that's quite dangerous, right? And we see in the inability to prosecute torture and so forth because there was an OLC memo later withdrawn saying it's okay, uh, what are you going to do? Right? There's this sort of get out of jail free card right. as you pulled in your memos. So, but all that said, I have a certain humility that I know the answer, right? That I have the right, oh, that, that this was too far, but this was enough. And, or that there even is a solution to this pressure point. And so to me, it's enough to recognize that it's critically important and that it's a little bit weird. It's not what we're th we think about in terms of how a bill becomes a law or what, what the, how the government works, but it, more and more it's, it's, it's where the rubber meets the road. And the best I can do in terms of you know, what is the check and balance on this, this strange kind of lawyering is to say, well, I think transparency is the answer. All these lawyers are in power today, but tomorrow they're going to be back at law school. They have public uh, reputations. They want to be respected as people who took the law seriously and really grappled with hard issues and didn't cut corners. And so knowing what positions they were taking, knowing what their memos said, knowing whether it was blowing it off or really trying to get it right, uh, and knowing that someday someone like me is going to put it on the front page of the New York Times, or even 20 pages into the New York Times for some of my nerdier articles, um, at least is some kind of a constraint uh, going forward. And that's the best I can do with answering well, I think, the question. I think it is a constraint. I, I think that transparency and that what you do is, has a huge disciplining effect in government. I'm confident that when you start writing about something and start asking questions, I know from experience the government starts to get its act more together just by virtue of you asking and going to write on it. So I think that's a great way to finish, and it's a great book, and thank you very much. Thank you, Jack. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.